Well, good day, Victory Church. It's so good to see everybody, and I want to welcome those joining us online. We are here to hear from God tonight, and I believe we will. We are in the midst of a series called Be the Church, and it's such an important series. And um, I believe tonight my message is um, I'm going to be asking a question that I think will provide the keystone to the other, mes- the other messages, the one we heard last week, then one we're going to hear for the next couple weeks. But before I start, I do want to mention, they're all gone now, but our worship team and our tech team, you guys, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Let's give them a hand. They work really hard, and I'm like, boy, Lord, is so good. I can just come in here, show up, and worship you like that, and um, it's, it's really a blessing to us. All right, so be the church. I want to start with a question that I would ask all of you. What is the most important thing we can do to be the church? What do you think the most important thing we can do would be if we are going to say we're going to be the church? Well, I'm going to answer that tonight. You know, Jesus, in the course of his ministry, was asked a lot of questions. Some people just wanting to know some things, but he had this whole group of people, most of the religious folks of his day, who are asking him questions, not so much out of curiosity, but because they wanted to trap him. And why were they wanting to trap him with questions? Because as Jesus' popularity grew and it was growing, thousands of people were following him around and wanting to hear him and wanting to, be, uh, wanting to experience healing. Their power, their status, and because of his teaching, their self-indulgent lifestyle was being threatened. And what do we do when we're being threatened? We put up a fight. So for most of Jesus' ministry, they followed him around and asked him questions. Again, not because they were curious, not because they wanted to learn, but because they wanted to trap him. So one day, a scribe came to Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 22. A scribe came to Jesus, and the scribe was really like a lawyer. He knew the the Jewish law inside and out, and most of his life, all he did was study those, study the scripture and debate the scripture. Well, this scribe came to Jesus, and this is what he said. We are in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be looking looking at verses uh, 35 to 40. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him, Jesus, with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Hmm. Jesus answered them. He not only answered the first question, what is the greatest commandment, but he answered a question that wasn't even being asked. Well, at the time of Jesus, the Jewish people, they had 613 commandments they were trying to obey. Can you imagine living like that? (laughs) And of those 613 commandments, 248 were positive, and 365 were thou shall not. Okay, one for every day of the year. This was a tremendous burden for the religious people of that day. And uh, for uh, the 613 commandments, they actually created 1,500 what I would call mini-commandments. They call them the Mishnah, but I call them mini-commandments so that they were able to obey the 613. That sounds like a lot of fun to be a Jew, doesn't it? Woo! Actually, the law was a heavy load on the people because they learned, they thought by obeying every single one of the laws, that is the way they pleased God. 
Well, and it was common for the scribes, the Pharisees, to sit around and debate, and the question they actually debated most was, which of these commandments is greatest? What do I really need to obey? They were kind of overwhelmed with all of them. What do I really need to obey? Well, so the scribe was sort of asking, what does God really want from us? What does he really want from me? What target am I aiming for? Nowadays, when we ask questions about God or questions about life, we might say, our culture might say, what's the meaning of life? What on earth am I here for? What is the purpose of my life? What is the path to the good life? Well, and, and our, um, our Western culture, our answers would be looking within or looking at ideologies or political positions to find these answers. And they, the, our culture would see God and the scripture as obstacles to finding answers to these questions. But we, as the church, we know that our answers to those sort of questions are found in God and in the scripture. What is the meaning of life? What is the path to the good life? What's most important, God? Well, I would say that the answer is this. The most important thing we can do to be the church is to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. We're here because we love God. Christianity is about loving God, isn't it? We get distracted, we get confused, we get off on tangents, but Christianity is about loving God. Well, Jesus didn't just pull his answer out of the air, but he was actually quoting something from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, it's called the Shema, and that's a Hebrew word for listen. And the first word of the verses in Hebrew, listen or hear, was Shema, very complicated, right? And so he was quoting the Shema, and let's jump over to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, and I'm going to read the, the, the uh, verses that Jesus was referring to in his answer to the scribe. It says, listen, O Shema, listen or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Parents, to hear that? right? <laughs> um, tie them on your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, surround yourself with my words, surround your life with my commands, talk about them constantly, let that be the wallpaper on your walls, on your phone, so to speak. That, this is where Jesus was pulling that from, and you know, uh, an, uh, a committed Jew of Jesus' day would actually pray the Shema, twice a day. Their day began in the evening, so every evening, and then every morning, committed Jewish people would pray the Shema. They say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. They would pray that. So imagine Jesus, when he was in that manger, laying there, uh, cognitively maybe not, but you know what? He heard his parents saying that night he was born, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. Love him with all your heart. So Jesus was born hearing that. In the first morning of Jesus' life, he probably heard Mary and Joseph praying the Shema. Think of that. Powerful, right? And when little Jesus, we don't usually think of little Jesus as little Jesus unless you've seen the chosen. But um, <laughs> little Jesus, when he started to learn to talk, the very first prayer that Jesus prayed was a Shema. 
His very first commitment, he learned, was a Shema. This was the heart of Judaism. But you know what? Jesus shook it up. Because he didn't just start, 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 he just didn't stay with loving God with all your heart. He said in his answers to the scribes, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And he didn't say, oh, and this is the second commandment or this is next. He said, this is as important as loving God with all our hearts. Mm, he was shaking up that scribe. He was shaking things up and he just didn't pull that idea out of the air, but he was quoting a verse from uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. These five little words. And Jesus redefined love for the Jewish people and for this scribe. Well, we have a lot of loves in our life. But he's telling us, love God and love our neighbor. To be the church, we must not only love God, but we must love our neighbor as ourself. We're here about love. We're here about loving. Look at these beautiful people sitting to right and left. Look at them right now. Christianity is about really loving these people, loving them even when they're not so beautiful. Hmm, Jesus shakes it up, doesn't he? All right, so, so as we move on through the New Testament in the early church, did the message change? Let me take a drink. A little warm water up here, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> the message of the New Testament didn't change. Let's turn to 1 John. And this, these are 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are some letters that the disciple John wrote to the church. And John um, is the, was the oldest living disciple. He was an eyewitness of Jesus, and he was very, very close to Jesus. In fact, the scripture set calls John the disciple Jesus loved. We know he loved all of them, but he was especially close to Jesus. And so if anyone saw love in action, saw what it was like to love your neighbor, John did. And I, this is so interesting as we're talking about love. So John wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but you know what? At the, this is right here in our Bible, but the last book of the Bible is what? The book of Revelation. Who wrote that? Probably John, right? Okay, so I read Revelation recently, and if you're reading Revelation, it's not only telling the church of the day, this is how you're to live in a corrupt world. But it's like giving us a glimpse of heaven. And it's so like sci-fi, right? You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like, what in the world? So John saw that vision with his own eyes. That was when he was on the Isle of Patmos. But you know what? That was written actually before 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You would think, oh, it's afterwards because that's where it comes in the Bible. But it was written before John returned to Ephesus. And he was back in the local church with his friends, with fellow Christians. And he wrote these letters to the people. And you know what his message was? Was it about Jesus being, you know, shining brilliantly with woolly hair and horses and beasts and angels? Now, listen to what John said to the people in Ephesus. 1 John chapter 4, he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If someone says, I love God but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For, we don't, for if we don't love people we can see... How can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their neighbor. Love. It's all about love. Even after you see visions of heaven and you, God discloses some of the future to you, it all boils down to love of God and love of neighbor. To be the church, we must be loving. 
We must ask ourselves, was I loving today? Was I loving to my housemate? Was I loving to my classmates? Was I loving to the people that I worship with? Am I a loving person? We love God. We must love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So my next question is, is how do we define love? Well, what does it mean to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it mean? Well, our Western thinking, we love a lot of things. We love tacos. We love our dogs. Okay, some of you just woke up. We love the eagles. We love the fillies, right? I mean, and there's nothing wrong with loving things like that, right? I mean, I love tacos, but it's totally a self-interested love because, first of all, they look awesome. They're all colorful. There's a little bit of vegetable in them, so you feel justified for eating the rest of the grease, right? But they taste so good, and they feel my belly. Our Western definition of love has a lot more to do with affection, attraction, and desire. Our love, our definition of love in our culture really is pretty consumeristic. What does it do for me? I love those tacos because <laughs> we love our dogs because, you know, and we love the eagles except when they lose, right? No. <laughs> anyway, so our culture would define something a little bit more like that. And in that kind of love, again, loving things like that is fine, but self is a little bit more the center. It's a little more consumeristic. And you know what? If we take that definition of love and apply it to God, apply it to people, we're going to miss the mark of what God is calling us to do as the church because we can't love God for what he does for us. That's consumeristic. He loves us and he does so much for us. And he wants us to go to him. I'm not saying not to do that. But our love for God can't be consumeristic and transactional only. And our love for the people sitting around us can't be transactional either. It can't be consumeristic what they do for us, how they make us feel, all this kind of stuff. God's love is far greater than this. Sometimes in the church, we define love as spirituality. Sometimes someone who really loves God sees angels, they prophesy, they understand the deep things of the spirit. Sometimes people who love God, they have great faith and, oh, I'm going to have them pray for my miracle because I know they have faith. Sometimes we define love for God as sacrificing for the poor. And you know what? All those things are really good. But you know what? I'm going to share with you what Paul said to people about this kind of activity. He said this in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, he's one of the apostles, one of the founders of the original church. He says, if I could speak all language of earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, even sacrificed my body, I could, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. All that stuff is good. All, of that, all those things are gifts spiritual gifts to build up the body and reach people outside the church. But those are not the measures of love. Because if you do those things without loving your brothers and sisters, really it amounts to nothing. Another definition we have for spiritual maturity or love might be spiritual disciplines. Oh, you know what? He has a quiet time every day. He must really love the Lord. Boy, that woman prays. She must really love the Lord. Boy, you know, that person, they just serve all the time. You ask them to do something, and they're right there. They must really love the Lord. Some people 
um, have so much Bible knowledge. Boy, they know every verse in the Old Testament. I'm just lost, but they know their Bibles. Sometimes that is our definition of love. You know, those are paths to spiritual maturity, but that's not love. Those are good things, right? Those are good things, but they're paths. They're not love. So Deuteronomy 6, the Old Testament word for love is beautiful. It's ahava, and I might not be pronouncing it perfectly because I don't speak a lot of Hebrew these days. Ahava, and it means a loyal allegiance and a loyal allegiance. And God is calling us to love our loving with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm not going to go through the Hebrew definitions of all those words because it kind of means everything, right? <laughs> um, I will say that word for strength in the Hebrew is really interesting. It really, it's really an adverb, and it means the best translation I read was muchness. But what it means, like we love God with our mind, our strength, our bodies, our hearts, our um, emotions, everything we are. But that says our muchness, everything that we influence. We love him with our education, our platform, our influence, our finances. We love him with everything we touch and everything that we influence. We love him with all of that. Ahava, it's a loyal allegiance, all we are. Um, in Leviticus 19, where Jesus lifted that verse about loving our neighbor as ourself, being as great as loving God. It also gives a definition of what love looks like, and I'm not going to read it, but I picked some of the, the, the um, things out of the Leviticus 19. If you want a good read as you're trying to go to sleep tonight, try Leviticus 19. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. It's God's word, but you know, it's kind of, there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> All right, but love looks like this. According to Leviticus 19, it looks like respecting your parents. It looks like taking a Sabbath rest. It looks like providing for the poor. It looks like keeping your word. It looks like giving fair and timely wages to your employees. It looks like care for the special needs among you. It looks, for, looks like justice, and the scripture says it's justice for the poor and the rich what the word says. It looks like not being slanderous toward one another. So even this scripture is set in a picture of love and how we relate to our neighbor. This is love. The New Testament word for love is agape. We all know that word probably. And it's totally not consumeristic at all. It's not transactional. It's not about what I'm going to get out of you or get out of God. Um, agape is just a beautiful word. And there's a, a professor, a, a biblical scholar named Scott McKnight, and he has something called the Jesus Creed, which he's taught on and written a book on. And it's basically love God with your whole heart and love your neighbor as, her, as yourself. And this is how he, dis he defines love. And I really think this is a really good biblical definition of love. What does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to love God? Scott McKnight says that love is a, ru a rugged commitment. It's a rugged commitment. In the Old Testament, God showed his rugged commitment for the Israelites. He cut a covenant with them, and I'm not going to go into all the details about that, but he made an agreement with the Israelites, but he made himself responsible for that. And, uh, and he, even in all their rebellion and their, the craziness, if you've read through the Old Testament, of, of God's people, God stuck with them. It was a rugged commitment to his people. In the New Testament, God has given us a new covenant that we find in the blood of Jesus. And we know what Jesus' love looked like, that sacrificial love that, uh, where Jesus laid down his life for people who 
rejected him, people hated him, people hadn't even come to know him yet. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A rugged commitment. Not a consumeristic love at all. Um, Scott defines what a rugged commitment looks like in a lot of different ways, but I want to say um, a rugged commitment that we can see is the Christian covenant of marriage. And Ed and I got to go to a few weddings this summer, and they were beautiful. I mean, they were amazing events. Um, everything about them was beautiful and fun, but I love the ceremony part. And um, both couples um, wrote some of their own vows where they basically expressed their love to the one they were marrying. And one of the women actually left her note in the changing room and was out there, I had something really good prepared, and she just had to speak out of her heart. And, of course, I was crying. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. Um, but after they shared, I think, like, revealed their hearts toward one another, it was really a sacred moment. They made some Christian vows in marriage to one another. That was a covenant of marriage, and that's why... As Christians, we believe in marriage. We believe in if you love someone, you get married. Um, because it takes a covenant on days when you aren't so much feeling those beautiful words you said toward your spouse at your wedding. In case you don't know, occasionally there are days like that. Right? It takes a rugged commitment, and that's what Christian marriage shows. The rugged commitment we have toward one another through thick and thin, through good and bad. I love you. I will love you. All right, presence. So Scott McKnight says there's a bunch of ways, but two ways I picked up that I felt really applied to Victory Church. There's two ways we show that rugged commitment, and the first one is through presence. Victory Church, as God's people, we show up for one another. We show up for one another. In the Old Testament, God showed up for his people through the cloud and through the pillar of fire and all that. They could look and see that their God was with them. In the New Testament, we have the incarnation where God sent Jesus, and the Bible says when you see the Son, you see the Father. And Jesus, you know, he probably had it pretty good in heaven. He could have come and lived in a palace and preached out the window, but Jesus wasn't in a palace. He was in the pastures with the people. He showed up for the people he was trying to reach. Church, we need to show up for one another. And now the church, God shows up through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in this room. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit's in you. And presence is the gift we have as his children. God shows up for us, and we must show up for one another. And what am I saying? Come to church, you know. <laughs> what I'm saying is when you come to church, we come because we need God. We want to worship him. We want to hear a word from him, but we just don't come from ourselves. We show up for our brothers and sisters because we know they need us. They need your love, they need your care, they need your encouragement, they need your giftings. No longer do we go show up anywhere just for ourselves. We don't join a life group because I really need to grow in this area of my life. Yeah, go because you need to grow, but you're going to show up because you want to love those people there. We need to show up for one another. My daughter and son-in-law have this baby. He's wonderful, but oh my gosh, they have to show up for him like every other hour doing something. I'm like, how did I do that? But that's love. That's that sacrificial, rugged commitment that we see from God. Folks, we need to show up for one another. You're here tonight because you wanted to come to church, but you're here for the people sitting around you. No longer is it just a consumeristic activity to be part of the body of Christ. The second thing Scott McKnight said is we 
in this rugged commitment, there's direction. We don't just come to hang out and have a good time, praise Jesus, jump around on the stage like Jonah did tonight. Um, but we're here because we want to encourage one another toward love and good deeds. We're going somewhere as the body of Christ. We need to be deeply concerned that the people sitting around us are becoming like Christ. The Bible says we need to love and encourage one another and build each other up. That's our responsibility. That's rugged commitment through thick and thin, through good behavior and bad behavior. We're here to help other people grow in love. We're going somewhere as a church. So rugged commitment seen in presence and in direction. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until I have to do it. Right? Well, hang on a sec. Loving our neighbor is a lovely idea until I have to do it, right? We can sit here and laugh and smile. To be the church, we really must love one another. I think Victory actually is a pretty healthy church. I've been in the church for a while now, been in a lot of different kind of churches. And then first of all, I'll say our church staff, I love them. We have so much fun together. We love working together. Um, hopefully you all agree with me, some of you are here. But, you know, and when there are challenges, misunderstandings, when some of us are having a bad day, there's mercy and there's conversations and there's apologies. We love each other. We, we're healthy. We're not perfect. We're healthy. And I believe our church is generally healthy, but we all know doing life together where everyone doesn't do things our way, which, you know, is the right way, right? Um, there are going to be little offenses. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be major hurts, perhaps. Rugged commitment is what we're looking for, rugged commitment. And even in the Christian family, perhaps our home, we're Christians. Things can get really down and dirty there, right? You know, but we're called to love those neighbors more than anyone, I think. Uh, there's a pastor from Queens named Pete Scazzaro, and he and his wife started this church, and it was multi-ethnic, and they were doing all these great things, preaching the word, caring for one another, uh, serving the community, praying. But after a while, he got very angry and disillusioned because he saw his people. They were busy doing the church stuff, but they were recycling the same dysfunctions relationally over and over, the same arguments, the same offenses. It was just being recycled over and over. And he said, God, where is the deep transformation that's supposed to happen in the body of Christ? Where are people deeply being transformed where there's healing and they're learning to love one another? And more than looking around his church, he looked at himself. And he was so frustrated because he was so angry he was so wounded. He was so frustrated with his inability to have difficult conversations. In fact, he said he had so much rage. He's like, Jesus, where are you? I know this is not who you called me to be. And he felt helpless and frustrated. Well, there's an answer. Let's look at the scripture. Let's jump to 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7. And the apostle Peter wrote this letter. Uh, the people he's writing to had received Jesus and he basically, in this letter, he's saying, come on, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up into Christ-likeness. Okay, so I'm talking about Pete Scazzaro's frustration, and this is what Peter writes to his audience. By his divine power, God has given us everything, everything we need for living a godly life. 
We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, we have, he has given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable you to share the divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. <sighs> wow. I looked up those words in there, <laughs> in verse, uh, verse uh, what is it, 5, where it says, make every effort. I studied that out in the Greek, and you know what it means? Make every effort. <laughs> Sometimes you can dig into the words, and it's like, wow. Sometimes you dig in, and it's like, oh, it means just what it says. He's asking the people to make every effort to grow up in love for one another. Every effort to grow up. There's a lady I follow on social media. Her name is Nedra Glover Tawab, and I'm sure I'm miss, miss, I miss saying that. She's a, a licensed, licensed therapist. She's written a lot of good stuff about boundaries. But she says this, sometimes we're having a conversation with someone we know and love, bringing up an issue, and what they say is, well, that's just how I am. <laughs> have you ever heard that? That's just how I am. And she says, well, you have to decide what are they saying by that. Many times they're saying... I'm not willing to change. And then she goes on to talk about what do you do in those situations. Well, um, she, uh, I would say sometimes when we're confronted with these kind of dysfunctions, this inability to be loving, sometimes we think, well, that's just how I am. I don't want to be that way, but I can't change. Sometimes we're stubborn and prideful, and we just don't want to change. But a lot of times we're just frustrated like Pete Scazzaro was, and we don't know where to go or what to do. Second Peter tells me that we can change. Second Peter tells me that God has given us his divine power to change. God lives in us, and he will enable us to change step by step, a steady movement toward being loving people, toward being the church. You can change. I can change. A steady movement toward becoming a loving, more loving person. But the scripture says, make every effort. So Pete Scazzaro formed a team of people, and they created something called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And in this, this program, um, it's based on something. It's based on spending time with God twice a day, sitting silently in God's presence, receiving God's love, and then moving on to Scripture and prayer. But the change, he says, and the skills he teaches, and this great program, because it actually teaches us skills to change, um, is based on just receiving God's love first, because no way can we be loving without experiencing God's love ourselves. Um, so I love the skills he teaches, and sometimes to change, we do need skills. Um, I have a skill card here that has been around on my desk and in my car. Um, I took this course about a year uh, last spring with, on Zoom with a bunch of leaders worldwide, and um, and uh, they, they asked me, why am I doing this? There's this evaluation. And um, Adam, I'm going to skip looking at the questions because of time tonight. But um, there's an evaluation. You do 40 questions that help you 
see where you are as far as loving people. And I said, well, I'm taking this course because I want to get a higher score. <laughs> and so one of the skills that the course teaches is stop mind reading and clarify expectations. Don't assume things. Ask questions to understand and clarify. Well, I've, I've been looking at this for a couple months. A few weeks ago, this is a secret, don't let anyone know this. Um, I was really upset with my husband about something, and I just, boom, let him know. <laughs> I know that never happens in anyone else's house. Okay, and I've been looking at this card for months, right? And so it didn't go very well. And so he stayed in the family room, and I sent myself to my room. And after a while, he came in and he apologized. He didn't even start it, and he came and apologized. Well, what I'm saying is skills are learned. You know, the, the women who won the World Cup didn't do so well because they just, you know, hey, let's go play soccer this evening. <laughs> no, they worked hard on those skills, so make every effort to grow. Make every effort to grow. Um, I do this, this uh, YouTube workout that I won't go into, and the woman who leads it is like 5'10 and was a ballerina, and I've been doing it for two years. So I'm like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> anyway, but after it rolls off the YouTube, sometimes other videos pop up, and all the time this doctor comes on and he's talking about running, and they're talking, I mean, it's like an hour and a half YouTube thing on running, and it's always the same one where he's interviewing someone from Big Bear, California, who was raised at a high elevation and runs at the high elevation, but then he goes down to sea level and does intervals, and they sleep in tents with certain kinds of air, and I'm like, but they're really into this. But you know, those guys are making every effort to be great runners. Church, Let's be the church and make every effort to change and learn to love one another. Well, my husband came and gave me that apology. And um, if, as, I, as I wrap up, I just want to say um, apologies, saying you're sorry, humbling yourself, owning what you did is, is the language of love in the church. The language of love. If, if there's not regular apologies and forgiveness given in your house and among your relationships, oh, we need to grow in that. That's like the lifeblood of everything. The most important thing we can do to be the church is to obey the greatest commandment, to love God and love our brothers and sisters. God loved us first, and that's why we can love. And if you're here tonight... And you've never given your life to the Lord, this loving God who made you and wants you to come home. I would love for you to pray with us tonight and invite him into your heart. So what we're going to do, I'm going to be praying a prayer line by line. And I would love everyone in this room to pray along with me. And there's probably someone in this room, this is a day for you to come back to Christ or give your life to Christ. He loves you so much. And he is the way to the good life. He is why you're here. He is the meaning of life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you. Forgive me for living life my own way. Forgive me of my sins. And give me new life. Thank you for loving me. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one short story before I close. There's a, friends of ours, we were talking about how they got engaged in their premarital counseling. And they were counseled by one of their pastors. And they went, you know, this you know, 20-something couple went to the door of his office and opened it. And he says, come in, sit down, let's get to work. Well, I mean, they were a little like, hello, how are you? Nice to see you. I'm so excited you're getting married. But they looked at each other. They knew they loved each other. And so they sat down and they got to work. Church, let's get to work.
Let's get to work at learning to love one another. Let's get to work at learning to love one another. So I actually have three action steps we can take to get us along the way of loving one another. First of all, I mentioned that Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. There's a website, and on the top of the, uh, the website, um, go there and do that 40-question assessment, if you dare. <laughs> it's a little eye-opening, and if you're even braver, share it with your spouse or housemate or someone. But take time and do that. It really is a beautiful way to look at yourself, and, and we can't grow until we know how we need to grow. Secondly, Victory Church, let's show up. Let's show up for one another. And one really practical way we can do that right now is choosing to be a part of one of our life groups. We have them online. We have them all days and times of the week so that they're convenient for you, so you can be in one. We have some with child care. All of them, any, any of them will help you grow. But I want to especially mentioned four of them. First of all, the Emotionally Healthy Connections or Relationship course we're going to be offering. I believe it's group three. Um, join it. It's going to fill <laughs> before Sunday. Um, it's a really wonderful course. You'll get closer to Jesus. You'll learn how to spend time with him, and you're going to start to learn some skills to start getting along with the people that we go to church with and live with. Secondly, um, the marriage course. If you're married, don't wait till you're up against the wall and you can't stand each other anymore to start working on your marriage. I mean, I've been, we've been passing for 30-some years. Work at it along the way. Improve it now. Get those tune-ups, the marriage course. Every man a warrior, if you're a guy here and haven't done book one, join it this fall. It's going to give you skills to spend time with God late, uh, every day, accountability to help you grow in your love. Uh, if you take in book one, go on and do two or three because we have like 50,000 Every Man a Warrior groups this semester. I'm kidding. There's a lot of them. So a lot of opportunity. Um, the next one, I would, the last one I'd recommend is Freedom, and you're going to hear a little bit more about that. But that's such a healing, a healing course. It's a healing course, so please take that. The third thing, and you're going to join me in this, but um, I want to uh, challenge you, invite you to start saying the Jesus Creed, the Shema, every night and every morning for 30 days. And you should have received a little card when you came in, a little black card, and if you didn't, they're in the lobby. And it has this Jesus Creed from um, um, Mark on it. And um, to close, I want to invite you to stand. And as the church, let's pray this Jesus Creed to the Lord. And uh, then I want to bless you. But take this card, and I want to challenge you to try to do this night and day for 30 days and see what the Lord does in your heart. So let's pray this together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Heavenly Father, uh, we are your church, and we thank you for your unconditional, rugged commitment to each one of us. Father, we just open our hearts and say, help us learn to love like you loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now someone's going to come and share some next steps with you.